1: There was a great preacher, Dr. Gardner C. Taylor, who would drink uh, before his sermons out of an opaque glass. One of the deacons said, you hey, look, we, we don't feel comfortable about this. We don't know what's in that glass. And he preached so well that that same deacon said, look, whatever he's drinking, get him plenty of it. <laughs>
2: well, one time I was preaching at so Swanee. sure we'll say the same. Bishop Wright is on the... Uh, well, one time I was preaching a Swanee and they were doing it was April Fool's and they put they put vodka <laughs> in the glass. <laughs> and so I I went, and, I, and as I was climbing into the pulpit, I went and it was like it was just like it was ever clear. I mean, it was not good. And it was thank God it <laughs> it the, the, the was, I didn't the,
3: drink. The question was, was the sermon better? Is that
2: yeah? <laughs> no, I didn't tell. Well, I didn't, you know,
3: was it widely was regarded tempted, as one of no. your best?
2: <laughs> they, they, uh, I, I think they were they had had a little bit before they showed up because that's uh, Swanee was known for that. Um, how are you, Christian? That was I'm
3: doing well, sir. How are you? Good to see you, man. Look good to see you.
1: Good to yeah. see you. This is this oh, is sir. an honor and a privilege. We're so looking forward to this. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I cannot tell you. The chairman of my trustees, uh, who is a partner of Pricewaterhouse and Cooper, he uh, he has read your entire memoirs, uh, cover to cover. He yes. he texted me this afternoon. I can't wait.
4: <laughs>
2: I've just finished the memoir. Yes.
4: Tell tell him thank you.
2: I actually if, if, Christian, if we could connect afterwards, I want to I want to invite your trust your um, your your lead um, layperson to be part of another webinar on business that we'll do in two weeks. If that's okay, that would he he'd be it. wonderful.
1: No, no, he could do it. His name is Derek yeah. Loman, so you'll see him pop up eventually on the uh, list.
2: Yes. Just text me. Okay, um, people are starting to come in. Just to let you all know, I know you all are watching on. We have about 315, and it's still climbing. Just to let you know, this is exciting for all of us. Um, I know that some of you are wondering when the show is gonna start. And uh, what we have to do is let you all get in, a little bit like letting a movie theater get populated. So folks, we're gonna wait just a bit more because more people are still coming on, but we're getting pretty close to where we're gonna start. So probably in about we're going to give it about one more minute and then we'll get started with the 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 the, uh, the program and um, I'm going to ask uh, I'm going to ask uh, Reverend Christian to open us with a prayer. So about one minute, I think we're holding steady. So actually, why don't we do that, Reverend Christian? Will you open us in prayer?
1: Yes, let us break enduring hope that knows no boundaries everlasting love that will not let us go we pray O lord that you will be with us as we discuss the inequalities and the role that the ecclesiastical institution plays in this present crisis and pandemic that is gripping the world we ask that you will anoint, bless, and consecrate this conversation, that it will be used for the uplifting of humanity in ways large and small. We pray, O Lord, that this will be a part of the beginning of a new day, that we will gain traction, for we know that the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. So, O Lord, let this be a step towards peace let this be a step towards justice let this be a step towards righteousness and we know that if we do that you will meet us on that journey and you will take us all the way until we become more and more like you we claim this in the name of our lord and savior jesus christ in the name of everlasting love we claim it today In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Amen. Thank you so much. Those of you who are with us tonight, joining us for this incredibly important uh, webinar on uh, racial disparities and inequality and the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, My name is Bill Danaher, and I'm the rector of Christ Church Cranbrook. And I am joined by the Reverend Charles Christian Adams, who is the Pastor of Hartford Memorial Baptist Church, uh, Reverend Manisha Dostert, who is the uh, Senior Associate uh, Rector of Christ Church Cranbrook. And each of us has a role in an organization called the Institute for Advanced Pastoral Studies, which is an organization that has uh, originally started in 1957 and then fell by the wayside. It was one of the first institutions of theological education uh, in the country. It was started by Christchurch Cranbrook and then evolved into what is now known as the Ecumenical Theological Seminary in Detroit. And this new iteration of this organization is to bring together the churches uh, from Metro Detroit. It is intentionally ecumenical. It is a diverse group of uh, clergy from different denominations and different ways of being together. Um, We are trying to uh, create um, a a network of clergy that can build the beloved community together and to also uh, work with one another on issues around uh, leadership in an incredibly changing context. And Detroit is one such context. So um, this has been something that uh, we have been working on for the past uh, two years. Um, It's something that we are, uh, it's been uh, funded with uh, incredible generosity by the Lilly Foundation, uh, which has been uh, which has given us a $600,000 foundation and uh, a grant that we are gonna be working on for the next five years. And uh, we are delighted that one of the uh, uh, mentors that we have brought in that has helped us in our initial in, uh, iteration of this program has been uh, Bishop Rob Wright, who is the Bishop of Atlanta. Uh, Bishop Wright has an amazing itinerary that Uh, includes uh, not only degrees from Howard uh, University and Virginia Seminary, but also four years as a helicopter pilot and search and rescue uh, diver. Is that right? So who is cooler than you? Nobody. Um, And uh, we are so grateful to have you with us. And and you've been an incredible uh, guiding light in terms of the kind of leadership that we are doing. Um, And we also are uh, one of the people that we have been working with, uh, at least we're scheduled to work with and whose book is uh, con- one of the kind of requirements in terms of the, uh, our reading is Dr. Angela Dillard of the University of Michigan. And Dr. Dillard's book, Faith in the City is <laughs> excellent. Glad you did that. Dr. Dillard is uh, a, a tenure professor at University of Michigan and loves her mom, which is very important. And also has an incredible book on the history of the black church in Detroit, which is truly a canonical text for anybody who wants to know Detroit better. So Dr. Dillard, thank you for being uh, part of this evening. Our, our main draw and our main um, our, our main speaker tonight is Charles Blow, who is an op ed uh, columnist for the New York Times. He uh, has written an incredible memoir that was turned into a opera that will be debuting at the Met Met next year. Um, Since uh, this pandemic has broken out, uh, Charles Blow has published probably the most influential important articles on uh, racial disparities and um, economic inequality Um, as a result of this, um, not as a result, that has been revealed in light of this pandemic. And we are so grateful to have you with us, uh, Charles. And we are so grateful for all of you who are joining us. We know that uh, several of you are gonna be continuing to to file on for this. And our our plan tonight is to to give uh, Charles some extended time to speak, after which we're gonna have some remarks from Bishop Wright and Dr. Dillard, and uh, doc- and Reverend Adams, and uh, Pastor Dostert, and myself, and then we're gonna continue to move around and hope that the conversations are gonna continue to uh, work with us. So without further ado, I will turn it over to you, uh, Charles, thank you for being with us again.
4: Great, thank you for having me. This is my very first Zoom lecture ever. I hope this goes goes well. Um, So by now it has been widely reported and widely understood that uh, black and brown people are disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 crisis, both in terms of infections and in terms of deaths. The questions people are trying to Answer tempting to answer is why it's the virus, it, it, it's mindless, it, it acts without a conscience or any intentionality, uh, it moves from body to body as an existential act, as an evolutionary function. So, there shouldn't be disparity. But when this thing without a conscience interacts with a society that has acted with depravity and malice that has privileged some and disadvantaged others, you get desperate outcomes like the ones that we see now. First, there uh, there's the issue of pre-existing health conditions, what scientists call comorbidities, uh, when they combine with the virus and cause death. An early study out of Italy found that almost half of the victims suffered from at least three prior illnesses and about a fourth were either had either one or two previous conditions. More than 75% had high blood pressure, about 35% had diabetes, and a third suffered from heart disease. These are all conditions that Black people in America suffer from at disproportionate rates. In addition, this is primarily a respiratory disease and black people are disproportionately likely to suffer from respiratory illnesses like asthma. The disease taxes the immune system and black people are more likely to be immune compromised by diseases like HIV. But Brookings Institute fellow Rashad Ray has argued that the focus should not be on pre-existing conditions themselves, at least not exclusively, but on the structural conditions that inform those pre-existing conditions. As he put it, Blacks relatives to Whites are more likely to live in neighborhoods with a lack of healthy food options, green spaces, recreational facilities, lighting and safety. These subpart neighborhoods are rooted in the historical legacy of redlining. Additionally, blacks are more likely um, to live in densely populated areas, further heightening their potential contact with other people. They represent about one quarter of all public transit users. Blacks also are also likely to have, uh, unlikely to have equitable health care access meaning hospitals are farther away and pharmacies are subpar, leading to more days waiting for urgent prescriptions. So health problems in the Black community manifest not because Blacks do not take care of themselves, as the Surgeon General kind of uh, insinuated, uh, but because health care resources are criminally inadequate in their neighborhoods. Regarding work, Blacks are more likely to be part of the new COVID-19 essential workforce. Blacks represent 30% of bus drivers and nearly 20% of all food service workers, janitors, cashiers, and stockers. There's a number of things that we need to tackle in in what he's putting forth there. And poverty, racial oppression, and anti-Blackness are the streams that run through all of it. The first thing to remember is that our current social conditions are not a fluke or a mistake or happenstance. They are not simply the result of ambition and drive and creativity and work ethic existing in one group and being absent from another. What we see today is largely the result of design. The system is functioning precisely as it was planned. As the American Anthropological Association has put it, how people have been accepted and treated within the context of a given society or culture has a direct impact on how they perform in that society. The racial worldview was invented to assign some groups to perpetual low status, while others were permitted access to privilege, power, and wealth. The tragedy in the United States has been that the policies and practices stemming from this worldview succeeded all too well in constructing unequal populations among Europeans, Native Americans, and people of African descent. Given what we know about the capacity of normal humans to achieve and function within culture, we conclude that present-day inequalities are not uh, consequences of their biological inheritance, but products of historical and contemporary social, economic, educational, and political circumstances. America created on purpose and with full consciousness of guilt, ghettos, and concentrated poverty. Those ghettos became breeding grounds for hopelessness, despair, violence, and unhelpfulness. And yes, the pre-existing conditions we see being exacerbated by the COVID-19 crisis. The other issue to interrogate is who is considered an essential worker. Aside from people in the medical community, many of the people considered essential are low wage workers, among whom black and brown people are again, disproportionately represented. These are sometimes the unseen and unappreciated who make the world work to keep us safe, and keep us fed. Now these people are venturing out every day, often on mass transit, and bringing home whatever germ they may have encountered. As the Economic Policy Institute has pointed out, less than one in five Black workers and roughly one in six Hispanic workers are able to work from home. As the report pointed out further, only 9.2% of workers in the lowest quartile of the wage distribution scale can telework compared to 61.5% of workers in the highest quartile. And beyond the people who are considered essential workers, many of these are people who touch people for a living. They provide child care and elder care. They cut and fix your hair. They grow and cook your food. For these people, social distancing is a privilege. Furthermore, very often, the living conditions of poor people are not conducive to distancing. The living in too small a space with too many people, not enough money, and not enough time, not enough storage, other factors impacting the black community is the compounding acculturation of of state violence against black bodies. In a nation where too many black people have been made to feel their lives are constantly under threat, the existence of yet another Threat produces less panic. The ability to panic itself becomes a privilege existing among people who really have to panic. Your relationship to fear is different. Your relationship to danger is different. And then there is the historical facts of the states in general and the medical fields in particular, egregious transgressions against black people that stretch back to the time the first Africans were enslaved in this country. It is this history that informs a leeriness and a suspicion about the medical community. I think that this is a, a, a huge part of what we have to come to understand and also come to grips with as a country, what we have done throughout the entire history of this country, the Black body has always been a battleground defined by imposed insecurity, physical insecurity, economic insecurity, and health insecurity. Over the 250 years of slavery, black people's bodies were not their own. Their health was not their own. Their reproductive choices were not their own. Their families were not their own. Slaves were raped and assaulted, forced into unwanted pregnancies by unknown men, forced to be wet nurses for other slaves or even the enslavers' children themselves, forced to part ways with their own children, forced to live without the security of chosen family. Even when slavery came to an end, the battle over the rightful place of those Black bodies continued. Those enslaved were freed into enemy territory among the very people who had enslaved them with no access to the enormous wealth that their forced labor had created in this country. America's response was to establish the Freedmen's Bureau to help ease the transition during the very brief, too brief period of Reconstruction. The mission was to help smooth the transition of whites and Blacks from enslavers and enslaved to employer and employees. They gave out millions of rations because many of the formerly enslaved were literally starving to death. And they helped negotiate contracts. But even with the bureau, health care for freedmen was still severely lacking. White doctors refused to see Black patients and white hospitals refused to admit them. Epidemics of disease flourished. It is estimated that a full one quarter of all formerly enslaved people in this country got sick or died in the years following emancipation. As Connecticut College uh, history professor Jim Downs wrote in the Journal Lancet in 2012 throughout the Civil War and Reconstruction many freed slaves became sick and died due to, due to the unexpected problems caused by the ex uh, exigencies of war and the massive dislocation triggered by emancipation the destruction of slavery and the gradual erosion of the plantation economy compounded by federal government's initial ambivalence and often ambiguous plans for rebuilding the South left former slaves without any institutional structure to help them survive. The end of slavery led to the abrupt dismantling of antebellum systems of medical care, both those organized by the enslaved people and by individual slave owners on local plantations and it exhausted the network of support provided by multiple alehouses and state hospitals. Enslaved people had also developed certain remedies while living under slavery, but the war displaced them from the vegetable gardens and other resources they relied on to create such remedies. On certain large plantations, slave owners hired doctors or established sick houses for enslaved people during the antebellum period. But once the war began, Former slave owners argued that it was no longer their responsibility to provide medical assistance to formerly enslaved people and claimed that it was the responsibility of the federal government. Meanwhile, federal officials believed that it was the responsibility of the cities and the state governments to help to step in and provide aid for the poor and dispossessed, since they had provided such assistance for poor white people since the 19th century. Local and state governments, however, claimed that. They were beleaguered and maintained that the number of white southerners in need of clothing, food, and medicine had drained their meager budgets. The confusion created an institutional vacuum that left ex-slaves defenseless against disease outbreaks and their situation was further exacerbated by freed people's nebulous political and economic status. A year after the establishment of the Freedmen's Bureau, Congress sought to renew the charter with the Freedmen's Bureau Bill of 1866 but President Andrew Johnson, a flaming racist, vetoed that bill. According to the National Park Service, he believed that, among other things, that bill was class legislation for a particular segment of society that would keep the ex-slaves from being self-sustaining and had not had done that for struggling white people, if you can believe that, right? For decades, this systematic segregation, cultural and financial disenfranchisement and educational and health deprivation continued and became entrenched. That was until the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. That provided a moment of optimism for the country but no sooner had the old Jim Crow fallen than what author Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow was erected in its ashes the new Jim Crow was mass incarceration and it accomplished almost all of the same goals as the old Jim Crow add to this the gap between and access to and quality of care that some people experience in this country As Forbes wrote in 2015, African-Americans, Latinos, and the economically disadvantaged experience poor health care access, lower quality of care, and lower quality of care than their white American counterparts. And in most measures, the gap is growing. This is compounded by the basic level of mistrust of the medical community in the black community. And this mistrust is not without historical grounding. It is rooted in the fact that Dr. James Marin Sims, the so-called father of gynecology, a slave owner himself, performed shocking medical experiments on enslaved women without using anesthesia, using the ridiculous rationale that Black women did not feel pain. It is rooted in the 40-year-long Tuskegee experiment in which Black men with syphilis were allowed to suffer, while doctors falsely told them that they were being treated for the disease so that the researchers could study the progress of syphilis in the human body. It is rooted in the years of forced sterilization practiced on Black women all across the South, often without their knowledge. As Ms. Magazine wrote in 2011, some women were sterilized during cesarean sections and never told. Others were threatened with termination of welfare benefits benefits or denial of medical care if they didn't consent to the procedure. Others received unnecessary hysterectomies at teaching hospitals as practice for medical residents. In the South, it became such a widespread practice that it had a euphemism, a Mississippi appendectomy. In fact, there is a whole book written on this subject. It's called Medical Apartheid, the Dark History of Medical Experimentation on black Americans from colonial time to the present. As that book points out, the experimental exploitation of African Americans is not an issue of the last decade or even the last few decades. Dangerous, involuntary and non-therapeutic experimentation upon African Americans has been practiced widely and documented extensively at least since the 18th century. And I spent a lot of time on that because for me, that is really important. There is the wealth or poverty problem that leads to the lack of healthcare, poor health outcomes that is compounded by this disease. But there's also a culture in this country that is detrimental to Black health. America has built up to this moment through a long track record of racial hostility, isolation, and oppression. This all leads me to my final point. On top of all else, Black people and the Black body is simply not valued equally. Black pain is not registered equally. Black suffering is not mourned equally. The Black person in America is not seen as equally human, deserving of compassion and care. This is what Martin Luther King called the thingification of the Negro. For us to fully deal with these disparities that are being exposed by COVID-19, we must first come to see Black people as equal people. We must first come to see Black people as fully human. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, that was wonderful and an incredible um, uh, rehearsal of of, of, of important events. And I'm so glad you in particular brought up the Tuskegee uh, experiments, which um, is something that is well known to many, but also that you dug back and drew some connections between um, the the end of slavery and the beginning of a kind of what we would call a, um, uh, racial capitalism, uh, you know, the a capitalism that was exploitative from the beginning and then also the medicalization of racism, which is an incredibly important thing as well. So you've touched upon some real connections and, and uh, it's incredibly important that you've um, opened our conversation in this way. I want to turn to Bishop Wright.
3: Uh, Thank you, Bill. And uh, thank you, Mr. Blow. Uh, I really appreciated uh, your offering. Um, in this sort of leadership framework that I try to pay attention to, um, we talk in terms of diagnosis. We talk in terms of getting the truth in the room. And in fact, scholar Walter Brueggemann has, has, has offered us a, a great way to think about this. He gives us a sequence of events. He talks in terms of first getting reality in the room and then making space for the grief uh, that is necessary. And only when we get those two factors in the room do we actually begin to work into an authentic hope. And so I wanna thank you for doing your part uh, as the prophets of old did, which was to, to say those things which were ruled out of bounds to say, uh, which is to sort of get the reality in the room. I understand it. this is a difficult task and I understand that, that uh, actually our response as individuals and systems usually fend off that kind of reality, at least in three ways, Uh, euphemism, denial, and despair. Right, so when we hear the the overwhelming, uh, um, uh, unflattering uh, aspects of our republic, which are um, well-documented, people will tend to default to euphemism, denial, or despair. And so uh, I, I'm always really interested in is is that when we get reality in the room, uh, when we get the jot and the tittle in the room, when we when we point to the bodies, when we point to our our collusion, uh, and I can say that as someone who represents a religious community, when we point to all of that, um, it is easy for some to be paralyzed uh, by the reality. Um, and And so I, I always uh, think in terms of, Let's get it in the room, but let's also not default to sort of a a paralyzed sort of of being overwhelmed. And so I wonder what you'd say to that. Where do we find the leverage points here as we begin to try to make the pivot? Uh, Where where are the refinements? Uh, uh, How do we send the message of agency to people Um, as we begin to, as was prayed for us early on uh, to walk our way forward? Um, I, I, wonder how you'd respond to that. Um, well, I, I have I
4: always remind people that the system that we live under now took 400 years to build, right? So it, it, you have to play a very long game. If you're looking for, uh, ways to let's fix it now. And that that fix will be permanent and resilient it doesn't work that way. Right. So, you know, uh, let's take, for example, the, the horrific, uh, spectacle of lynching. It, it took a lot of refinement. It, it started as this really crude uh, spectacle uh, on trees and ropes. And, it, you know, but it took years for it to move indoors right. and become the death penalty, right? It took years of refinement of way people finding ways to say, we will still take the life. We will still know that it will be disproportionately one group of people and not another. We will, we will know that embedded in the decision to take that life is a bias that we can document. We're not getting rid of it. We're going to refine it yeah. until we get it perfect, right? And what we have to do when we're, we're trying to uh, deconstruct the things that have been constructed is that we have to know that we are doing, we have to play the very long game, that you have to build a counter system. If the system is, in itself is is, is racially biased, you have to start doing the work to build a counter system that will work against that system. And so that so so I, I think when we start to look at it that way and we, we don't look for instant gratification to say I can do these three things that fix this, but rather that we have to fix textbooks, we have to deal with student debt, we have to deal with broadening uh, the healthcare system and, and eliminating as much of the bias embedded in that as possible. We start to look at each individual system and realizing there's, all, there's 500 steps here. I can only take one at a time though, and I'm gonna start working on the 500 steps, realizing full knowledge that there are, there are 499 left. But if I start going in the right direction, eventually I will reach my mark, right? And I think when, what we have to do is to, is to realize that it took a long time to build this system. And it will take a long time to undo it. But once you start working in the right direction with the right kind of set of priorities, then you're on the right road. Thank you.
2: So much of what you're saying is um, similar to. I mean, you're 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 naming the order of thinking that is uh, operative in things, and the way that this has been created in such a way so that is the re- it is the reality that so many of us see but don't understand that that reality has been created by our biases and by um centuries of treatment and there are two two points to even bring it right to 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 with with a with a pandemic the first obviously in 1793 there was a yellow fever epidemic in philadelphia and the white community asked the black community to care for the white community as it got sick because there was the the spurious belief that african-americans were not going to be as susceptible to yellow fever as white people. And so through uh, incredible heroic sacrifices, the black community cared for the white community. And then uh, once things returned to normal, the white community um, accused the black community of being uh, of price gouging for their services. And that was a, a major, uh, a well-documented case of, of pandemic uh, in, in the United States, um, both exacerbating and creating um, racial divisions um, in, in ways that I hadn't even before. Another example, just to move sideways that you're talking about um, is in uh, South Africa in the late 19th century, right before the establishment of the Group Areas Act, otherwise known as apartheid, there was a pandemic or an epidemic of, of, of tuberculosis in Cape Town. And at the time, African-Americans actually had a much lower rate of morbidity when it came to tuberculosis than whites, but it was used by the press to justify the removal of Africans from the center of town and to place them in designated spaces because it was believed that Africans were more, um, were more susceptible and also carried the disease more than, than um, Europeans or, or others that were uh, uh, there that, that in that area. So this is not, I mean, what you're saying is actually can be correct, connected directly to events of pandemic and, and racism that are very clear. And, and that order of thinking is incredibly important, I think, to name. And with that, I want to shift to uh, Dr. Dillard, maybe, and to offer some insights along those lines.
5: Absolutely. And good evening. I really um, want to try and pick up on some of the things that uh, Charles Blow was talking about and maybe connect them to um, uh, Bishop Wright. But first and foremost, I really want to thank Charles Blow for that great prophetic voice um, in, in in his contribution. Reminds me of that voice that I grew up with as a member of Hartford Memorial Baptist Church under the elder um, uh, 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 Reverend Charles Adams. And it's kind of, you know, nice to to have that in the room and in, in, on the Zoom, as it were. Uh, the other thing I want to do is, is to just raise up the memory of, of uh, Jason Hargrove, who was the 50-year-old black bus driver in Detroit, whose, vi- whose video about being coughed on while he was doing his job um, went viral. And then he died uh, You know, with, within, within um, one week of that happening. And I think that that's a, an important memory to kind of have with us, right, um, you know, a, a, almost the kind of sacrifice uh, that, that, that he made and kind of trying to keep his memory alive for his family. So I, I think when you think about um, the enormity of, of what uh, Charles Blow was talking about and the severity of the crisis that we're faced now, it seems to me that the idea of going back to normal, um, it, it's just not tenable you know that that normal is not the way forward to a sane and healthy society right because the normal that preceded the pandemic was so profoundly broken in the first place and kind of on the line of you know how do you how do you think about agency how do you think about um you know undoing some of what's been constructed in the past as a historian and as a historian of, of social and political movements in which religious leaders and faith communities have played a big role, um, it's hard not to shift back and think from a historical perspective, are we seeing now that the kinds of conditions being set up for what might be the next great social movement in the United States? So things about social movements are, they tend to come at moments where things are, are dire, right? Things have not been good, things are, are radically broken, but people don't tend to see them coming. Right, so in 1951, people can't really imagine what becomes um, the, the, the post-World War II Southern Civil Rights Movement. Um, and so I'm kind of you know, thinking along those lines and thinking about you know, the conditions for social movements. What are we seeing now? Remembering that social movements, the civil rights movement is a really great example, um, can grow up in moments where societies are extremely polarized politically. So the civil rights movement grew up in the context of the Cold War internationally, the Red Scare domestically, Um, you know, so a lot of people would have thought the conditions on the ground aren't really right for this. I think the other thing that's really kind of interesting to think about, um, and I was thinking about it, especially when uh, uh, Charles was talking about how long it takes to create oppressive systems. Um, and to remember that the African-American freedom struggle, the struggle for justice in America, not only for African-Americans, but for, for all people you know, whose lives are lived at the margins has been transhistorical. I mean, it almost looks like a, a kind of relay race. Um, and in fact, I, I thought it was really great uh, when Charles was talking about um, the 19th century, the moment of Reconstruction and the fall of Reconstruction Some people call the civil rights movement the second reconstruction, right? So the second attempt to fix what was so profoundly broken at the beginning. And so these days, people are really seriously thinking about a third reconstruction and what that might mean right now um, in in, in terms of American society. It's not my term. I actually stole that from uh, 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 Reverend William Barber yeah, who's in North Carolina? He's the person that started doing Moral Mondays to protest conditions in the state. That's turned into a national movement. Um, they're calling it a, a call for, for moral revival of the nation itself, and they're linking it um, historically and politically to the Poor People's Campaign. So they're trying to kind of go back to that moment in 1968 where SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Council, is trying to figure out how to continue on, um, you know, how to continue on after um, uh, King has been assassinated. What's the future of the movement going to look like? And they wanted its right to be a movement against poverty, against racism, and against militarism, right? And so I think kind of going back to that moment and thinking about, you know, a third Reconstruction, picking up some of that sensibility from from 1968 thinking in the way that um, um, Barber and his group have been thinking about the connections between health, the environment, workers' rights, the the, um, dignity of work itself, which I think is part of the problem with this first responders problem, right? That we don't care about all first responders equally because we don't really care about the dignity of certain kinds of work that's not only been racialized but deeply gendered simultaneously. Um, They're looking at mass incarceration. um, And they're looking at the restoration of voting rights in America, right? And trying to think about the intersection of all of these things, um, centering on on problems around um, race and racism and xenophobia, but thinking about building movements across different constituencies and and, um, different parts of the, the, the population especially around the problems of poverty, which, you know, as we know, disproportionately affect African Americans, but numerically, most poor people in America are white, right? So, so how do you make that a kind of basis of organizing that would pick up on these historical trends um, and push us forward, right, in this this kind of trans-historical movement um, in hopes, always, of a more just society? Um, And I think that this moment of this pandemic uh, helps to 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 seed that ground, right? For for pushing so many of these issues front and center for us, and giving us the ability, at least briefly, to see them before we rush back into a a a, a, um, a normal that again was deeply broken in the first place.
2: Thank you so much. I want to appreciate that, and um, the. Um, I I I want to 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 maybe segue to to my friend Christian to speak more about this. I you know one of the things that the recent uh, publication from the Journal of American Medical Association said that we uh, as a nation are failing a stress test when it comes to COVID-19. And That seems to kind of be uh, one way to summarize your incredible uh, comments and to turn to you, uh, Christian, to have your your input.
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to say how good it is to dwell together in unity to have this conversation is uh a, a very good uh first step or or part of the those those uh five hundred steps that uh Professor was uh sharing with us uh but I think it's particularly. Uh effective and powerful that we're doing it in the context of uh, different churches, different races, different social locations, uh, different professions. There's such a, a broad mix of people on this webinar. Uh, I am just inspired. Uh, we ended our last webinar by saying what gives you hope. It's, it's nights like these that gives me hope that a better day is coming. And I just want to thank the uh, leadership of Hartford Memorial Baptist Church, particularly the trustees for allowing us to participate uh, to help produce uh, this conversation. And uh, also the uh, leadership and uh, senior director of Christ Church, as well as the other uh, panelists for their commitment. And most of all, uh, Professor Charles Blow for what he has been advocating for years and uh, is writing and uh, guiding us uh, uh, through this pandemic uh, with all of that knowledge that has tonight given us a historical context for what is happening to us right now. And that's a big problem, is that we often look at it in a vacuum, uh, even though people have been careful to say that the COVID-19 uh, reality has revealed inequity. We really don't know the uh, the deep roots uh, of inequity. And this has been with us uh, from the very conception of this idea of of race. Uh, Audrey Smedley in her book Race in North America, said that uh, race is a human invention and a social construction. And when it was invented, inequality was the immediate uh, result of uh separating people and classifying people uh by this this idea of, of race that uh whenever you start to uh make those kinds of of uh you you say well one one race is uh is less able and qualified uh one race is uh is less um, uh, uh, deserve it. Uh, one, one race is inferior and uh, one race is uh, 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 certainly uh, uh, less human than the other race. And that affects your access to resources And that is at the very root of the invention and construction of our society because so much of it is uh, centered around race. Now the problem is this, it affects everybody because unequal access to health care is going to create a society in which nobody is well. As Professor Blow said, a, a uh, virus doesn't know this human invention and social construction of race and class. It doesn't know to stay in its place. It did not know that it was supposed to stay in Wuhan, China. It did not know that it was supposed to uh, avoid the, uh, uh, the British monarchy and uh, the White House and uh the suburbs uh it 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 just moves from host to host and, and and it doesn't care and and it wanders until it finds another host white or black rich or poor uh and there's an interconnectedness that we have to acknowledge and when you think about the cost of those who have suffered unfairly and that uh, uh at a higher rate in the vulnerable communities that cost is astronomical i mean these are not nameless faceless people i i performed a double funeral on on friday i'm still trying to emotionally get over it two of the most beautiful people that i ever met in life who were settling in they had a beautiful home in detroit uh, they they constantly cared for it. They were always updating it. They were very uh, active in the church and the Rosedale Park community. They were a- always active in the church. They they did whatever they could. The gentleman, he was a, uh, a Boy Scout leader. He volunteered at the homeless shelter. He was a deacon. He, he just would help anybody could, his wife, was uh, uh one of our uh, deaconesses uh she was a quilting sister she made quilts for for people who were cold she fed the hungry i mean these are some of the most beautiful people you would ever meet in life they they had money but they they chose to live in the african-american community rosedale park borders some of the most challenged neighborhoods even though most of the people in Rosedale Park are financially stable but that proximity uh, cost her she was she she became ill he began to care for her they both uh, ended up passing away within 48 hours of one another and uh, we had a double funeral on uh, on last Friday uh, and and we all know tales of war, doctors committing suicide, children who have passed away from it. whose parents were first responders, uh, young and old, white and black, American, and so many other worldwide citizens suffer. That's the cost of our lack of of, uh, action. And I'll say this, it's very good that we're having this, this conversation in the context of the church, because we bear some of the liability uh, in this crisis we have been too concerned about survival we have been too concerned about our sacerdotal exercise as my father used to call it Uh, we've been too concerned about our uh, specificities and denominational existence than really getting out and advocating for the least last the unlucky and the left out uh and we have been wooed into this uh this thought that uh we we are so important particularly in the church in in the urban context uh uh, bill and i were talking the other day we We're moving past a lot of the old uh, descriptions of the black church and the white church, but the this idea that somehow the church is supposed to provide uh, health care, the church is supposed to provide mental health. Uh, support that the church is supposed to provide food that the church is supposed to provide housing that the church is supposed to provide education. We have been uh, uh, seduced into thinking that that is our primary role when it isn't. We should be making sure and holding accountable the institutions that are supposed to be providing that. Angela Dillard, Dr. Dillard, uh, uh, certainly highlighted that in her book, in the City, when she talked about how uh the pastor at second baptist church the historic second baptist church in downtown detroit was called a human resource office i'm, I'm sure i'm getting that wrong dr Dillard, but uh, he was like a human resource office for ford motor company and uh i'm sure uh that that he that he relished that role of determining who got hired from the black community in the ford motor and if there were any labor disputes he would bring them into his office and settle those disputes if uh, there was any concern about employment uh, uh, he would he would work with uh, uh, the leadership that he was given access to and the antithesis to that was the pastor at Hartford Avenue Baptist Church at the time, which later became Hartford Memorial Baptist Church, my father's predecessor, who fought tirelessly for labor unions. And that almost cost him his freedom, his life and his economic uh, stability. He was branded a communist. He was attacked, uh, excoriated and persecuted in just about every way possible Uh, he was uh, watched by the government he was uh, criticized by his own people Um, but when we look at the result you know uaw local 600 was founded in the sanctuary of hartford avenue baptist church i don't know if everybody on the call knows that uh, but dr dillard mentioned that it is part of uh history what labor unions have brought to the African American community, the, the couple that I talked about, the, the gentleman was a former Chrysler worker, has brought us some of the highest wages in the world health care for, for auto workers, uh, health care, and many other benefits, not only to African Americans, but to everybody. And, and that's the kind of substantive work that you can do when you're not just concerned. About having church, and, and I, I'm just thankful for this conversation because amidst this COVID uh, pandemic, a lot of churches have been concerned uh, about making uh, colorful and fancy uh, internet expressions. I'll just put it like that. So who can who can come up with the most creative uh, internet production? Well, look, at the end of the day, I'm certainly concerned about the ritual life of the church. I I have pledged my professional life to that, but I know that that must be a conduit, that must be a means to something that is so much greater. And I'm just glad, I'm excited. Uh, if, if If I didn't jump out of this, if I jumped out of my seat I would not be in view of the camera, but I feel like jumping out of my seat because this is the uh, the kind of, of conversation that's really going to make a difference. And I'm just so glad that uh, Christ Church invested in it, that uh, uh, the Episcopal denomination invested in it, that IAPS invested uh, invested in it, and that uh, so many people are a part of it. Uh, this is exactly what we need uh, to start uh, pushing the needle in the other direction. So uh, I look forward to the rest of uh, our conversation together, not only with uh, Professor Blow and our panelists, but those who have uh, uh, tuned in.
2: Well, I want to thank you. That was such a beautiful um, response, uh, Christian, and and really so f- it was fulsome and huge. And I. Um... I have to tell you, I, I mentioned South Africa because I used to have, do research trips there and had a long-term relationship with places there. And the first time I heard your father's name was when I was in South Africa with a group of students. They said, do you know the Reverend Charles Gilchrist Adams uh, because of his work uh, in, in, in the anti-apartheid movement and all that he did? And uh, and so when your father and uh, through your ministrations, obviously. Got me invited to preach in Hartford. I was like, "Oh my God, (laughs) I have been. I have. This is this is the best day of my life." So, uh, your the work of your church and the work that you've done, and
1: and the work that we. Hills have never been the same
2: since. Yeah, exactly right. Um, I want to turn to uh, Pastor Dostert and ask for her response. Um.
0: well, thank you. Uh, I I feel the the least um, the least capable of of the of the esteemed group here. Um, I have no background in history, and therefore took mad notes. Um, and I'm I am really glad, and I think uh, all of our listeners are going to be really glad that this is recorded, so we'll be able to go back and listen to um, to Mr. Blow's. Um, incredible rendition of of the historical context in which which leads to where we find ourselves um, I I think from my background which is uh, as a scientist um, who then turned to the priesthood I I have been uh, uh, overwhelmed by um, something that is caused by um, an organism that has the capability to uh, Overcome the human physiology that is meant to try to keep us alive, and um, and what this pandemic—this is the first pandemic I've ever lived through—as <laughs> as for all of us. And I think what we've all learned from a pandemic is—is is its ruthlessness and how it attacks um, all peoples. And I really appreciated what um, what Christian said. This this pandemic has shown that there is um no difference between any of us that um that that if you're if you lived in italy you were going to be as decimated as if you lived in new york um as if you um lived in in the um country of my heritage india uh it's it's going to affect us all and um and and it's going to continue to affect us all not only physiologically but also um Also through through um, the systems that are created so that we can all live, Uh, I noticed that um, Mr blow in your in your in your Twitter um, feed that you've been retweeting a lot of these important articles about the next pandemic that's going to hit, which is going to be focused on hunger. Um, So, so all of that to me is to say um, scientifically um, my eyes have been opened to something I don't think I've ever considered before. And that is um, the, the, the power of public health. Um, I think we, especially in the state, spend a lot of time thinking about our own individual health and um, the healthcare system, how it takes care of our own individual selves. I don't think I've spent much time thinking about the importance of public health. I haven't spent much time thinking that the health of people in the city actually affects the people in the suburbs and vice versa, and this pandemic I think has blown that wide open for all of us. Um, what happens um, in all parts of the country, um, and indeed all you know, parts of the world, as we're finding out, is is deeply affecting each one of us. Um, so, so the idea that um, that that the health of everyone is actually um, part of the health of of my own self is to me one of the most revelatory visions that that this this egregious virus has shown me. And and I think what I take from that is is that um, moving forward, both as, as a society, but especially as the church, I, I would like to talk more about what that means in terms of my responsibility as um, as an American and as a christian. Um, how How do I take um, the idea that that the health of a person who lives in the city of Detroit in my context is just as important as the health of a person who lives? in uh, the suburbs of bloomfield hills and that they're deeply connected. Now that deeply connected piece like that preaches in the church, right? <laughs> so so in some ways this shouldn't be hard for the average christian to put their head around. The average christian understands that we are one body and we're many members. And you don't you you can't you can't say to the toe you ain't important to me um, because i don't think there's a single one of us that wants to lose a toe. Um, so, so we all understand that that everything is deeply connected, and everything has deep, deep value. and 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 so, I'm looking for for my toe to be as as healthy as my nails and so on and so forth. And now, all of a sudden, i d- I care about about what happens to um, my my black brothers and sisters my brown brothers and sisters, my white brothers and sisters, all of them. I care about of them because it, it actually matters also to my care and my welfare. I, I think um, I think that's sort of the big kind of vision I had. And we did we did talk to um, somebody who worked in the Wayne County Health Department, which is where Detroit is located, and um, and there was there was an interesting um, admission that public health was um, cut from the budget um, a couple of years ago and um, and and uh, of course, now it's been brought back in. and I think that's part of the reason that many, many inner cities have struggled because I don't think that's unique to Detroit.
2: yeah, and to pick up on that, and I'm going to move it back to Charles in a second. I just want to add a couple of things to complicate matters and maybe to to focus us on on what we can do as as church leaders in this time, um, you know that that you're exactly right, Pastor. I mean, it was during the uh, bankruptcy of Detroit, so there was a movement from pub, uh, the, the 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 Department of Public Health became in, uh, in a um, nonprofit and shed about fifty to sixty percent of its workforce, and then was reconstituted as a public as the public health department with the, the with the same small cadre. And there was just no way they could provide the same kind of services that they had once done. Um, you know, the problem that I've encountered in Detroit is uh, is unusual, um, in some ways, in that there actually is a lot of intimacy between the white community and the African American community. And one of the things that you talk about in your memoir of 2014 is uh, how there was a weird bit of you know intimacy in in louisiana between the white and black communities and that um so there there's actually a a fair amount of knowledge of what's going on so knowledge is actually not the problem here i i one of the things that i've done is i went to um i go to visit my my parishioners in their place of work and i was touring a factory of, of a wonderful man who owns a factory He knew every single name of the persons who worked for him. Many of them were African-Americans, knew the challenges they faced, was able to get them uh, clearing up things like uh, their suspended licenses, which is something within Detroit is something that happens an awful lot to African-American men um, because it's a, it, the 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 cost of insurance is so high, it's just easy pickings for the police. They pull them over and they run it, and they and, and they've got a suspended license because they haven't been paying their insurance. Um, so uh, what? And, and and that intimacy is is so real, um, and yet that in- inequality is so real too. And that's the that's the thing that breaks my heart, and that makes me tend to go to. What Bishop Wright was saying about um, denial and and euphemism and despair Um, that that's something that actually uh, because in order for us to actually see deeper connection between the two, there would have to it's not so much that something there's not like new knowledge that has to come in, there has to be a kind of change in sensibility or spirituality. That really has to change, and the second thing I want to say is that the church. Has uh, done this before. Uh, I used to live in Canada, and the the social gospel movement in the United States, you know, gave us Riverside Church and a couple of other churches. That's great. Maybe Union Theological Seminary even. Um, but in Canada, the social gospel movement gave them the healthcare system. Uh, historians have shown that it was the, that that oh, was right. the pressing achievement of the oh, social right. gospel movement. And that's why that, that health care system actually continues to be as excellent as it is and has outcomes that exceed ours, even though if you want elective surgery or if you want to go see some of the best brain specialists in the world. If you have any money in Canada, you get on a plane. We understand that. But the so one of the things that I see that the church could be doing is actually advancing public health in a different way, because that's that's something we could do as resourced parishes, we could actually do something different. Um, and I think some, some, pers- some parishes have purchased medical debt for people, huge thing. The second thing, the third thing I want to say that is hard uh, for me to admit is that I think we need to change our repertoire of how we engage people. Let me give you a hard example. Um, we had a poor people's campaign in Detroit a couple of years ago 160 people were arrested it was not reported in the press you would not have even known it happened if you happened to not not be on the facebook uh, page for that and there was not a large it did not have a large footprint my concern is that advocacy as it has been traditionally used which is where you create some drama and then you, and then that drama gets you. You pull out a very inhuman response, and then you publicize it, right? That no longer actually um, is 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 as powerful as it once was. It doesn't seem to lead. It doesn't. It doesn't have some of the 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 structures behind it, and it doesn't actually lead to something forward. So, what do we do in a kind of post-advocacy denial-ridden? <laughs> um uh, a very kind of anemic place uh, that we find ourselves
4: for me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't i didn't get the cue um well i think it, I, I often talk a lot about structures uh, uh and systems but i think one of the the uh interpersonal uh hurdles that we all have to face uh on a one-to-one basis interrogating ourselves and our friends and our families uh is that we have to remember that anti-black white supremacy does not require malice uh and and the only way to get to what some of the other panelists were talking about which is i care about you because it also impacts me it means that i must also elevate you to to the same status as me as a person and there is a is a um, true resistance to that. That there there is even among liberals, even among uh, uh, people who spend their whole lives advocating for the right the, the right causes and for black people and it or do the work. Even among that group, there are anti-black white supremacists. They genuinely believe there is something pathological in Black culture and among Black people that is leading them to have these desperate outcomes and that that is intrinsic to them. And as long as you believe that you are courting your fate in that way, it allows us to look at these issues, these problems, and say, that we don't need to do as much to fix them because this is they can fix it themselves right this is this is not a thing that the system has a role in because these are personal choices that you are making right And this has existed forever right you know uh, 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 Abraham Lincoln is, the great emancipator. Abraham Lincoln was also a white supremacist, right? When he is, he's engaged in that Frederick Douglass debate and he is saying, literally, you can look this up. He's saying, I, as much as any man, don't believe that white black people will ever be equal to uh, white people. And in, in, because that racial hierarchy must exist, I, as much as any man, Believe that the white person should take the higher the the, the higher position, right? So people engaged in that, you know, people fought in the Civil War, put their bodies on the line, and sometimes lost their lives, and they were white supremacists, right? One of those men was the the founder of Hampton uh, University, right? No. It's a black school. He dedicated his entire life to no. educating black people. And yet, when he's yeah. in the middle of the war, he's writing letters to his college friends. Said, "I just can't get. I can't warm up to these black people, right?" So, so I, <laughs> what we have to do is to say, "Your good intention is not enough. Your even if you are engaged in the work, that is not enough. What we have to do is demand that you interrogate." the possibility in yourself that you too believe that there is something intrinsically lesser about me because I was born in this skin because until you get rid of that all the feel good work that you do all the t- every you know time you stroke a check to the negro
2: uh, college fund that's not undoing anything yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful. That's a beautiful way to begin. I want to turn to uh, some of our other panelists because I I think that that's a real yeah. thread that I'd like to pull for a bit because, uh, you know, embarrassingly, my I was am related by marriage to a, uh, the the grant the great granddaughter of a white lieutenant from the fifty fourth Massachusetts, which was the the famed glory regiment, and he was a white lieutenant. And I came across his letters, and I was so proud. And he was just a horrific racist. <laughs> and uh, it, it's I, I cannot. I mean, this is a person who gave himself. So you've named it right there. I mean, that's. I mean, I, 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 I when I read the letters, I keep, they're just. I, I they're not even mentionable. And so, thank you for saying that. What? May, let me turn to the to the to the panelists. So, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I
5: think there's a lot there to, to really think about and to to try and unpack individually and then you know systemically. I think I'm struck by um, you know this 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 notion of public health being at the the center of the conversation right now. And that health, and that this revealing that health is not something that's individual. It's not something that can be stopped by a wall. It's not something that can be just stopped at one community that it is one of those issues. Um, you know, where, where you can see the just intrinsic systemic connectiveness, not only of people, but of large scale systems, right? I mean, so, so the fact that you can't buy certain things in certain markets because the food chain has been so disruptive, right? I mean, so I think it's just really interesting moment. I know somebody in the, the questions, you know, mentioned um, uh, Rebecca Solnit, you know, who's kind of written mm-hmm. a, this beautiful book about how some moments of disaster um, You know unearth utopian possibilities, they they get us at least for a moment to to think differently than we normally think and. You know things that seem to be quote unquote common sense, you know in those moments become weird to us because they're not common sense they're they're these deliberate. deliberately structured systems so i'm really curious about whether or not this might be one of those moments that just kind of shake our complacency a bit and allow us to think. In terms of larger kinds of possibilities, both about the, the stakes of healthcare and health in America, that everybody's health right now is imperiled. That no one right is is somehow immune from what's going on, even if you need to go to an emergency room about another condition. Right? I mean, your health is being compromised in this moment. And so, what does that tell us? Not only about our connections to ourselves, but you know, amongst communities. But our relationship in, in in larger systemic ways and the ways in which racism turns out to be so central to all of our health being imperiled in, in this moment. And I'll just say I was watching the the some of the, the stuff in the chat, and people were talking about, you know, really good works on, on you know, how to be an anti-racist, right? Or, you know, how to think about race, how to think about racism about race, right? I mean, some of the things that we're really struggling with right now. And I'll just add another um, uh, recommendation. Uh, the, the last name is, is Kendi, K-E-N-D-I. And the book is how to be an anti-racist, right? In which he's really sort of thinking about this, not only in terms of somehow solving the problem of racism, but also solving the problem that we all find ourselves in, in which all of our health is being you know, dramatically imperiled in this moment. And so the, the, just to kind of reflect, on the cost of
2: this. I think it's just an enormous moment. Wait, let's turn to the uh, Pastor Adams and then uh, Bishop Wright.
1: Uh, yes, just, uh, I, I believe that uh, as John Lewis said, I, I'm a prisoner of hope. Uh, just the fact that we, we are having this kind of uh, dialogue I think is a result of a long series of those utopian moments. Uh, There have been watermarked occasions in in history that have been uh, uh, paved with with tears and blood and sacrifice uh, and pain that have led us to where we are today. And I'm like John Lewis. You can't tell me that we haven't made any progress uh just th- that that we have had uh representative of the media and the ivy league community and dr blow uh join us here that's amazing uh the yale new york times are represented in him uh because one of the things that race has uh, the inequalities that are tied to race have always benefited from have been the media and uh, those uh, institutions of higher learning. Uh, The the educational community has always backed this idea of supposed inequality uh, and inferiority. See inequality is based on the idea of inferiority. So as uh, as, as Professor Blow said, until we internalize the the idea of equality until we really feel it deeply within uh we're going to keep taking two steps forward and three steps back so you're not going to hear many discussions about this tied to the Freedmen's bureau i guarantee you don't look for it but we've had it and that's serious because America went forward with the Freedmen's Bureau and then took a step back. We had affirmative action, we went forward with affirmative action, then we turned back. Now they're even bringing in the question whether we have the right to vote at all. So uh, I, I'm just, uh, 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 I, am, I am prayerful that uh, this is one of those moments in which we we grasp that utopian dream. We we, we ask ourselves, uh, can this world be a better place? And 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 understand this. That would make all this suffering worthwhile. If 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 we could die for the salvation of future generations, death would be sweet. And I pray that uh, that that's exactly what we're moving to.
2: Bishop Bright.
3: Yeah, I'm. I continue to be grateful, like uh, Christian, for this conversation and for uh, and for Charles's uh, commentary. I, I think that again, there's a there's this biblical pattern, biblical blueprint about um, about the status quo being challenged uh, by truth bearers uh, who stand in tradition. And so, I'm grateful that 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 paradigm is alive uh, with us tonight. What we're talking about is an unflattering interpretation of America's past. Uh, and uh, and that's why the, the walls are built up so high against it. We have a mythology that we much uh, much prefer uh, rather than you know what is what has actually been the facts on the ground. And so so I'm, I'm glad we are we have uh, we are increasing our capacity, I hope by by modeling this together tonight um, so that this can kind of sort of multiply.'m I'm, I'm grateful about that. I think it's interesting to me is that we have the, you know, uh, just to sort of put things in perspective uh, charles said that uh, we this is a we have to play the long game indeed we do have to play the long game and the long game that we're in in the church is this notion of neighborliness right is is, is will that be the purpose of the church to extend uh, the friendship of god as it has been extended to us or will we fall short uh, and accept uh, idolatry uh, of white skin as a cheap substitute I, I think that this is this has always been you know the church's uh struggle always been you know, people of faith's struggle the idol is so much easier to attain uh it doesn't cost as much as a life with god cost and the life with god cost that you and i be ready to give up smallness separation and superiority and so what we have now that's rearing its ugly head yet again in, in this covid 19 thing and the disparity is is that it, it is it is revealing our baked in deep commitment to separation and superiority and, and i loved again how how you you know you've, you've laid it bare i mean and the black body is at the center of that what the black body re- represents in this culture is completely central to this notion and so you know one of the sermons that that doesn't get preached that perhaps should get preached and i'm here i'm looking at a couple preachers is is that you know uh, and and don't think me callous hear me out uh it, it is it was right that some died in the wilderness uh after following uh you know this this sort of exodus because they could not they did not have the capacity uh to embrace what was new, the new thing that God was doing and so uh be careful preaching that on sunday but I, but I think what we're, i I think I think what we, what, what we are talking about at least in part. is is seizing the moment that's before us to advance the cause that I think that we're all on board for, which is this radical notion of neighborliness as given to us uh, by God, but understanding that uh, some significant portion of generations are going to have to perish for this idea to really catch the force and momentum that it needs to catch and maybe that goes without saying maybe that's just an evolution uh, that needs to happen across all cultures but i but i think that this is what is happening so i, I want to agree with uh, professor dillard i want to agree that and at least this is where i find my hope in that you know uh, we think sometimes too much of ourselves in the church we like to think our that we're right at the cutting edge of everything that's not how the history reads actually what the history reads actually that you and I people who happen to have uh you know stimulated by words of faith governed by words of faith we actually find new depth and meaning to our words in the face of moments like this then we find that these words are tested and to be trusted then we find new dimensions for life then we say oh in fact God is trustworthy and so I'm hoping that some people who are are, are having this uh, these disparities revealed in new and clear ways will then latch on to this radical notion of neighborliness as modeled by right. Jesus of Nazareth and others. And I'm hoping that that's going to give us a bit of a bounce out of this. Last thing I'll, I'll say is, is that uh, at least here in Atlanta, what I've been saying to my colleagues, lay and ordained is, is that we ought to not just hunker down in the face of this pandemic we ought to actually use some of this time to do the hard work to excavate some of this stuff to interrogate some of our uh, our biases and our holdings and see what we can do for God going forward i hope that we're going to sort of reattach ourselves to the actual purpose of church i think we've given up the notion of church in practical ways and that is to increase the fin- friend-making campaign of jesus i think we've given it up I think we've been, as Christian has said, we've taken up uh, and taken too too seriously and made job number one, our sacerdotal responsibilities. That was not Jesus' ministry at all. It was to find himself uh, with the least, the left behind and those on the margin. So the question is, and I hope it's not a trite one, but where would Jesus be right now at COVID-19, right? And I think Jesus would be having a conversation something like this, and then after this, and when it was clear to do so, to find himself in those highways and byways with people in disparity, putting his imprimatur on them. And I hope that at least in some small way uh, that this becomes not only an event, but sort of marching orders for people who wanna take up that work.
2: That's a beautiful way. I wanna turn back to, to uh, Charles and I wanna ask um, you to speak a little bit about, a. a this was a, um, a column you published in uh, April 22nd in which you uh, closed with the following uh things and i i i'm trying not to uh, i want to give you some space to speak to it how will we celebrate a life or mourn a death with no gatherings or funerals what happens when we are no longer making marking life's milestones a graduation a promotion a wedding in person with people we love how will the congregational energy of restaurants bars and nightlifes, it would have been nice if you mentioned churches, but I understand, um, <laughs> altered and transformed. And what will happen to the <laughs> what, are, what, uh, what, what are we, we are in a situation where we are, um, we are experiencing what 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 an anthropologist would call ritual uh, failure. Right. And, and I'm wondering, what role, if drawing upon your own background in church, what role can churches do that would draw from like the the work they do well to build this neighborliness that um, Bishop Wright is speaking of, or to to build the 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 love uh, connections that um, the, that Reverend Adams is talking about, or to create a sense of the the way that we are all connected that um, Pastor Dossert has mentioned or to create some new energy that Dr. Dillard has mentioned?
4: Well, I I, I won't won't touch all those, but I'll say this, right? So even um, if you uh, just for, as a thought experiment, remove scripture from the the practice and ritual of church. Remember what you have uh, as institutions that is invaluable, which is this. It is one of the only places, the only uh, situations that we have where human beings come together in the community, come together in one space. They talk about their—it's pro- like therapy. They talk about their problems. They get encouragement from people around them. Uh, they get a message that can take them out in the week, and they come back next week to check in, see how they did, right? And they—and—and and if they feel like they have to cry, they cry, and they're safe there. If they want to shout, they shout. And people say, nobody's here but us, go ahead and shout. And they get it all out, and they go back out another week, and they come back again next week for another check-in. And it's a communal thing. The, The ritual alone is one of the most valuable things that the church has to offer society because it makes people depend on each other. Even people who are not religious, Try to replicate the thing that the church does. They have their, you know, secular meetings and they try to do the, they try to sing, you know, have some sort of ritual because that becomes so incredibly powerful because it is the coming together and seeing your plight in other people. He suffered just like me. I was there, I lost a relative. I know what that feels like. Your heart is broken. Come sit with me. Come, come pray with me. Let me tell you. Let me. Let me try to feel your pain and and make you feel better. If one of the things I believe that this crisis is doing to us is making us feel realize just how valuable our rituals of congregating are to us. The people who are yelling and screaming I can't do it or the people who we chastise because they went out and they shouldn't have gone out because they are starving for some sort of connection to other people that's incredibly powerful and I think that in your church communities you have to use this moment to to have people remember the power of congregating
2: I want to just take a quick pivot before I thank everybody and then I'll get uh, to in once se- uh, just to say uh, one of the things that uh, brought together my church and Christians church is we began to um, create this ritual space around uh, choirs and jazz and African drums and the last uh, two uh, events that we had were unbelievable. And we were planning a major event with two performances uh, when the, the the virus took us by storm. And what I want to ask uh, Reverend Adams today and to put him on the spot is, I think God has not finished with us. And of course, Pastor Doster Kashi is integral to all of this. I think what we need to do as just a bare minimum as a start is to just start to to come together, and pour some resources into having a funeral for everybody who has been lost and giving away for those many bodies most of them black have been lost and to provide an opportunity for us to mourn together and to maybe begin the neighborliness with that we've done it before and, it, and we did an amazing work but this uh this will be another scale and uh are you willing
1: absolutely i was in new york student when uh we had the uh, big prayer service at yankee stadium and uh all of a sudden after nine one one, uh instead of uh having that 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 life in uh the yankee stadium for cheering for sports we came together for something uh, a, a lot more significant. And I think in a lot of ways, New York has never been the same since 9-11. Uh, still there's issues, of course, but uh, there, there's a profound difference. And um, that, that healing service was a big part of uh, processing everything that happened, 3,000 people plus being killed in 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 one day some of the bodies have never been recovered so they couldn't have funerals either that was a big step in our healing and most major tragedies uh these mass shootings also we we must have that and uh i'm anxious to start planning that but i just want to say also for those who uh are tuning in and do not know that hartford church and christ church cranbrook had a historical context of interdenominational interracial work that precede us so i believe that a lot of things that we are doing now are because previously christ church stood uh radically on, on the front line don't get bill talking about those stories about uh when when the black panthers came and took over uh service you can tell it better than i can and certainly uh uh hartford it was, an
2: exciting, it was an exciting sunday yeah
1: bloody sunday hartford has has also uh one of my father's uh mentors was henry hip crane uh who was uh, uh just a profound soul uh and uh he did a lot of inter interracial uh work in a denominational work. But anyway, that we couldn't have done anything without that historical context. So that works for us. And in this particular case with inequality, it's working against us.
2: Yes. Dr. Dillard, sorry, I didn't mean to, I just had that moment all teed up. I was so ready.
5: Absolutely. And I really look forward to the time that we'd be able to gather, you know, and, and have a ceremony like that, and really remember Jason Hargrove and other people um, who've lost their lives to, to to this pandemic and to a system of neglect, right? That that's kind of underlying a lot of those deaths that didn't have to happen. I think for people who are also thinking about gathering on a national level, I just wanted to make sure to to, to kind of call out um, and thinking about ritual gatherings nationally. That um, that, that there's going to be a moral march on Washington. They're gonna do it virtually, it's June 20th. It's the organization that um, Reverend Barber and, and other people have been working on yes. for a lot of years around this poor people's campaign, a national call for moral revival, folding in issues of health, the environment, mass incarceration, workers' rights, voting rights. Um, they're gonna to have to do it now virtually, but you know, there's a lot there on the web. It's really easy to find. They've got a really active Facebook page so I just really wanted to make sure that, you know, we think about not only the local context in this, but a national context in which people really are trying to, to use this moment to think about the role of churches, religious communities, faith communities, you know, and that old saying that um, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr had that, you know, every significant movement for social justice has had a religious component. And so I do think that there is a space for religious leadership and faith communities in this moment to think about mobilizing nationally um, um, and locally in line with this large historical sweep around these kinds of issues?
2: Well, I wanna thank you. I I think at at this point we have hit way past when we should have stopped. And um, I wanna thank, uh, first of all, uh dr Dillon for that those fine remarks and and just to say to all of you that have kept a kept here you've hardly anybody has left um that we will be uh, sending out a, a tape of this entire evening for you we're also going to do uh take the next step and transcribe um uh, uh charles's remarks so that if that's okay with you charles i'm sorry i probably i didn't do the uh i didn't i did look at that release i'm sorry i haven't put you on the spot but uh we would transcribe it and share it with the people who have uh, been here um uh i'm happy i'm happy to negotiate that with you and the um, the uh and just so that people can have that i've heard people in the chat boxes saying that they wanted to uh, use it in their university courses things like that Um, Uh i also want to thank everybody who has um, has saved many different um, wonderful links, including the link uh, that uh, Dr. Dillard mentioned. So uh, those will be in that chat box as you follow along. And I also want to um, say that there's no way we're going to continue to um, stop talking about this, uh, but there's also no way we I feel like we have just started to scratch the surface. Um, I I, I think that I hope that this symposium uh, can continue. Uh, Next week, we are going to offer an incredible opportunity for us to to learn from uh, the different people working in the social service sector about what's uh, being stressed there. And so we're going to be talking to the head of Forgotten Harvest, um, Lighthouse of Michigan, which is a major organization for homelessness. We'll be talking to Faith Fowler and her incredible work at Cass Community Services, and we're going to be talking to um, the uh, um, a representative from Samaritas, which does work with not just uh, nursing homes, but also foster care and um, also affordable housing, as well as refugee resettlement and we want. And then finally, we're going to have someone from the Detroit Water Authority. Uh, Palencia Mobley, who will be with us, who will uh, talk about efforts to restore water to people during the pandemic. And the reason we wanted to do that is because we wanted to hear from the people who are dealing with this day in and day out so that we as religious leaders can start to open the the see that the opening that we have uh with regard to all of these organizations and um each of these organizations does great work um i want to turn and say to to charles we have been incredibly blessed by you being with us tonight
3: Thank and
2: uh, i appreciate um, your incredible and uh, your, your, your moral compass at a time in which we need people with moral compasses. Um, I appreciate uh, the connections that you're drawing. It looks like it's the first chapter of an incredible book as well, um, because of the connections you're drawing, it's an incredible um, uh, uh, point of interpretation. And um, I'm so grateful for you taking time to be with us uh, as well. This has been an incredible blessing uh to to me and to each of us so without further ado we'll we'll thank you all and um just a reminder to all of us there's going to be one more link that you follow so we can just do a little bit of after um after after glow thanks thank you
4: Goodbye. bye